Please turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 2, and this morning we'll be reading verses 39 through 52. Luke 2, verses 39 through 52. Please give your full attention to God's holy word. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The biggest news in the larger church world over the past couple weeks has been the announcement of a plan to divide the second largest Protestant denomination, the United Methodist Church, into two different denominations later this year. One of those denominations would be a primarily American denomination that is theologically liberal, and the other being what they call a traditional denomination that adheres more closely to the historic teachings of Christianity that would be primarily international based in churches in other countries, more so than in this country. I've followed the trials and tribulations in the United Methodist Church a little more closely than some of the other mainline denominations because I grew up in a little country Methodist church. As I have been reading all the headlines in the media and some of the articles about this plan to divide, they are saying that it is a division over whether or not to allow clergy to be gay or to accept gay marriage. I would agree that that is the triggering issue, but it is not the dividing issue. It is the triggering issue in the sense that it is what the recent debate is about and it seems to have driven things to the point where the straw of the last straw on the camel's back has broken the back. But, the United Methodist Church, like other mainline denominations, has been very divided for a very long time. It seems odd to me, as an outsider, that they would divide over an issue like homosexuality 
when for decades they have been tolerating pastors and teachers who deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the very historicity of Jesus Christ, and denying the need for belief in Jesus Christ for salvation. There have been many, many in that denomination who have been preaching a different Jesus and a different gospel for a very long time. And it has been tolerated and even at points celebrated. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, made this comment on this division this past week. He said, once a church for any length of time accommodates theological and moral liberalism, it is almost never brought to reformation. A church that will not take decisive action to remove those who are theological liberals and who are teaching and believing what is contrary to the faith that established that denomination. In other words, a denomination that refuses to excise people who teach contrary to fundamental beliefs is a denomination that will no longer have fundamental beliefs. The root of this issue, what is truly dividing that denomination and has divided almost all the other mainline denominations, the root issue, the central issue, is the authority and sufficiency of the Bible as God's word. It all comes down to the most important question that any living being ever has to ask themselves as they face life in this world, which is, what is truth? How do I know what is true? What is my source of ultimate authority when it comes to what is true and right? And that's what's dividing the church. Journalist, the journalist David French wrote this in his commentary on the division in that denomination. He said, the secular media will cast the divide primarily in terms of that it understands as focused upon LGBT issues, but that's incomplete. The true fracturing point between mainline and evangelical churches is over the authority and interpretation of scripture. The debate over LGBT issues is a consequence of the underlying dispute, not its primary cause. He goes on to say, I think helpfully, orthodox Christian sexual ethics have absolutely nothing to do with animus or hatred towards gays and lesbians. Instead, the orthodox Christian sexual ethic, which reserves sex for the marriage between a man and a woman, rests on a sincere conviction that it is not only directly commanded by God through scripture, it is also best for human flourishing, and it is symbolic of the sacred relationship between Christ and his church. If the Jesus that your church teaches about is only a myth, or if he was just a naturally born sinner like you and me, or if he is just a dead philosopher and teacher, then he is not the, the Jesus of scripture. And when you preach that Jesus, you're preaching a false gospel. Churches that deny the fundamental beliefs of Christianity need to stop calling themselves Christian and call themselves what they truly and honestly are, another religion. Okay, so what does all this have to do with the passage of scripture that we just read? This is just an account of a visit, a religious visit, visit of Joseph and Mary 
and the 12-year-old Jesus to Jerusalem so that they could celebrate the Passover when he was 12 years old. The reason I'm pulling the issue of truth into this is I believe that's ultimately what this passage is about. And I think you know it because it's bookended by two profound statements that we need to look at. Verse 40 says, the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And verse 52 says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I think Luke includes this story in his gospel because he wants to give us a glimpse of the unique relationship between who Jesus is and the wisdom that he brought to earth. Wisdom, as a reminder, is not just truth. You can know a lot of truth and not be wise. I've met a lot of people. Matter of fact, I've looked at my own life in many cases where I say, I know the truth, but I don't apply that truth very well, therefore I've not been wise. Wisdom is knowing truth and then being able, by God's grace, to apply that truth well to your life. That's wisdom. Here's the definition I gave when we did our study in Proverbs a few years ago. Wisdom is skill in applying the truth of God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. Let me say that for you again in case you're taking notes. Wisdom, according to scripture, is skill in applying the truth of God's word to your circumstances so that you can make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says to us that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He doesn't say just that he taught the wisdom of God, but Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, and that's, I believe, the theme of this passage. Well, how is that true? Well, again, let's look at the event. This passage gives us the only information we have about the boyhood of Jesus Christ. Between his infancy and possibly up until two years old and 30 years old when John the Baptist baptizes him at the beginning of his public ministry. This is the only story revealed to us in God's word about Jesus during that long period of time. It tells of Joseph and Mary and Jesus going to the temple to celebrate the Passover. Of course, Luke points out no significance to that, but of course, this is the Lamb of God as John the Baptist would say, who came to take away the sins of the world. And here he is celebrating the Passover, which represented that redemption. But it's really his age, I think, that Luke points out that is significant to the events of the story. It says he was 12. And at 13 is when, in Jewish culture, certainly later, but we think even all the way back to the first century, in Jewish culture, at 13 is when a boy would become a man in regard to religious observances. Today they call it bar mitzvah, which means son of the law or son of the commandment. And so Jesus is on that brink in the eyes of the church of his day, the Jewish leadership, as being a man at 12 years old. The Passover was a seven-day feast, and so Joseph and Mary would have stayed for seven days, but it says when it finished, they started their trip back to Galilee, to the north. 
And it says they were part of a group. As they headed back to Nazareth, they were a part of a group. So we can envision a caravan of faithful worshipers who had just celebrated the Passover together are now traveling together back to the north. Or some of them are riding on donkeys, some of them are walking, but they're all together in a caravan. It says then, at the end of the first day, Joseph and Mary went to look for Jesus, and they couldn't find him. And of course they panicked, like any good parents. But don't think, you say, well, how could this happen? How could they go a day's journey from Jerusalem and only then realize that Jesus wasn't with them? All right, fess up. All you parents here, how many of you have forgotten a child at church or at school or a sporting event? How many of you driven off and you looked in your car and all, oh, well, there's one of them missing. We've all done it. Almost all of us have done it. Do not be judgmental to Mary and Joseph. But it's actually, they have an even better excuse than that. It's not just that we've all done it. If you understand what the caravans would have been like, from what we know of that culture and history, the men and the older boys would travel together in the caravan, and the women and the young children would travel together separately in the same caravan. So you can imagine here, here's where the age of Jesus comes in. He was 12 years old. I'm sure that what happened, I don't know, but I'm guessing that I think it's a pretty good guess what happened, is that because he was 12 and almost a young man, Joseph would have thought, oh, he's not quite there, so he's probably with Mary and all the younger boys and younger children. Mary thought, oh, he's 12. I'm sure he must be with Joseph and all the older boys. And so they each one assumed that he was with the other parent, and we've made that mistake before as parents. Why did it take three days to find him? That might jump out at you. Well, think about it. They, they traveled one day away from Jerusalem. They had to travel one day back to Jerusalem, and then they spent a day looking for him and finally found him in the temple courts. The focus of the story, the thing that we are supposed to most notice to give us the theme of the passage is what, where Jesus was, where they found him, and what he was doing. If you've ever seen the movies Home, you know, Home Alone, Home Alone 2, that's probably what most of us would expect if we left a 12-year-old by themselves for three days in a big city. So you can understand why maybe their first thought wasn't to go to the temple. They, they looked all over the city to see what their poor boy might be doing. But they find him in the temple courts, sitting among the most learned rabbis. Now think about this, the, the Passover had just finished. So the most prominent, the most learned rabbis were probably still there in the temple courts, debating theology, debating scripture, debating application. And there's Jesus sitting in the circle, participating, and not just participating, but asking, listening carefully and asking profound questions and giving weighty answers that impress them all. Here's where I want to go back to those two statements that bookend this passage. Jesus grew in wisdom. We have to wrestle with that a little bit. How could the Son of God grow in wisdom? The Bible is very clear in its teaching that Jesus is God. He always has been God from eternity past until eternity future. The second person of the Trinity, that there is only one God, but that one God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If Jesus 
is God, the eternal son of God, then he is omnipresent, he's omnipotent, and he's omniscient. In other words, he has all power, he is present everywhere, and he knows all things. There is no limit to what he knows to be true. There is no limit to his wisdom. So how could Jesus grow in wisdom? Well, at this, it's at this point that we have to tread on holy ground. To consider and contemplate truths that are revealed to us in scripture, but are beyond our tiny little human brains. Because we're talking about the very person of Jesus Christ. There's great mystery here. God, the eternal son, equal in being to the father at the incarnation. This is what we just celebrated a couple weeks ago. In the incarnation, in the birth of Jesus Christ, what happened is so far beyond our comprehension in that the eternal God, the son, added in a perfectly full, complete human nature to his divine nature. A little while ago, we confessed together the Nicene Creed, which we're more familiar with. Let me read to you from the Chalcedonian Creed, the Creed of Chalcedon, which took place in 451 AD. This is where the early church fathers came together to to give more uh, illumination to what the Bible teaches about the natures of Jesus Christ, particularly this relationship between his human nature and his divine nature. And listen, this is what the church has held from, since the beginning, from the time of the apostles. They said, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, all things like unto us without sin. The same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. The important truth there that goes beyond what was in the Nicene Creed is that he was fully God and fully man, two natures, one person, and that there is no confusion of the nature. Some of the heresies of the time were saying that he was a mixture of God and man, or he was a man who became God. There were, there were, this was to clear up the fact that he was fully man and fully God. This is a way of trying to explain what the scriptures teach about who Christ is in passages like Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, where it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And every true interpreter of that passage has always said that he did not become less than God when he emptied himself. He did not empty himself of his divine essence, but he emptied himself of the glory and privilege and prerogatives of reigning in heaven. He did not subtract anything from his divine nature when he added to that divine nature a completely human nature. Being fully human, Jesus experienced weariness like you and I do in his human nature, not his divine nature. He experienced thirst, he experienced hunger, 
He developed and he learned the same way that all humans do. He had to develop physically, emotionally, intellectually, and relationally. And this is the mystery. That in his divine nature, he knew all things, but in his human nature, he gradually learned truth and learned how to apply it to his life. He had to learn how to crawl like any toddler. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to run. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to write. He had to learn how to do carpentry as Joseph's son. This was all part of his voluntary humiliation and suffering on our behalf. The only difference is that he never sinned. He was fully human yet without sin, either in his nature or in his thoughts or in his deeds. He always did what was right and never did what was wrong. He always believed what was true and never believed a lie. And just as at the transfiguration on that mountain when his three disciples were with them, they saw a glimpse of his divine glory and his divine nature for just a moment. In a similar way, in his actions, sometimes his divine knowledge will shine forth. His divine nature will be revealed sometimes when he knows what other people are thinking around them without them being expressed. When he knew that the Samaritan woman had five husbands or when he knew that the coin would be in the fish's mouth that Peter took out of the sea or when he knew that Lazarus had died when he was still afar off. On the other hand, the scriptures tell us, Jesus said, that he didn't know the hour of his return. And there he's speaking according to his human nature. In his divine nature, he knows all things. In his human nature, he didn't know the hour of his return. There's a mystery there, and I'm not going to pretend to try to explain it all to you. But he was fully human. And one commentator pointed out that when it comes to us, in our lives, all we know about the future is what's revealed to us in Scripture. Our mission on earth is, uh, in regard to the future, is on an as-needed basis. That would, you know, know only what you need to know. And Jesus identified with us in that. Phil Riken says, he, he, he calls Jesus' acceptance of the process of growing in wisdom as, quote, part of the rules of engagement for his mission to save the world. Let me read that to you again. This is Phil Riken in his sermon on this passage. He says, his accept, Jesus' acceptance, voluntary acceptance of the process of growing in wisdom in his human nature as part of the rules of engagement for his mission to save the world. That's related to what Hebrews chapter 4 says to us. He said, it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who, one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus came, he taught us, and as Paul elaborates in Romans 5, Jesus came as the second Adam to be the human being that we were intended to be before sin entered into the world. And he lived perfectly as a human being, never sinning, never lying, and never believing a lie. 
That's why his sacrifice on the cross, when he hung there and died in our place and the wrath of God was poured out upon him, it was not for his own sin because he never sinned in thought, word, and deed. He died in our place. Only he was qualified to be the Passover lamb who was perfect and therefore could die as a substitute for you and me when he died for our sins. So Jesus' wisdom grew in his human nature as he lived life here in this fallen world. But it was a perfect wisdom. That's where we get to the second point, the astonishing wisdom of Jesus. Look at verse 47. And all who heard him, speaking of these rabbis, these teachers, and the bystanders, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Jesus was a precocious theologian at 12 years old. He was the perfect student. Those of you who tried to teach anyone, can you imagine what it would be like to have a perfect student who had perfect self-discipline, perfect attention, perfect insight, perfect intelligence, no laziness? The wisest rabbis in Israel were amazed at his understanding of the truth and its application to life. This is how the gospel writer Mark described the response of those who later heard the teaching and the wisdom of Jesus. It said, they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. If you had been there to hear Jesus teaching his wisdom, you would be astonished, even as we're astonished when we read his word in, in worship today. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Let that sink in this morning. Jesus is the wisdom of God, the only trustworthy source of truth. According to John's gospel, he is the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. As Jesus himself said about himself, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or as he more simply said, I am the way and the truth and the life. All other truth claims that you encounter in life must be measured by the wisdom of Christ, for he is the wisdom of God. Everyone, every one of you have trusted authorities in your life. People that you go to to say, tell me what is true, tell me what is right, tell me what is wise. And that's not a wrong thing inherently as long as all of those authorities in your life are subjected to the wisdom that is revealed to us through Jesus Christ. For some of you, it's a professor. So for some of you, it's a parent. For some of you, it's a sibling or a friend. For some of you, it's a scientist. For others of you, it's a philosopher. For some of you, it might be a celebrity. But all of their claims to truth must be measured by the wisdom of God, which is revealed to us in Jesus Christ himself. I heard about, a, I didn't see it myself, but I read later about um, something that happened on the oldest television program on, on TV. Do you, you know what the oldest television program is? Might surprise you. I was surprised when I heard this. Meet the Press. Longest running. It's still going. Meet the Press. Started, I think, in 1947. So, I mean, this is, this is a significant, significant uh, voice of authority in our culture. And the current host of it is a guy named Chuck Todd. And 
What they were discussing that day was trying to understand from a liberal, liberal uh, political perspective why so many people support our president and particularly how, why so many Christians support our president. Now, I'm just a preface, I'm not addressing that issue. That's a, that's a powder keg issue. I'm not, that, that has nothing to do with my point. I'm not going there. But that's what they were discussing. But what is relevant to our point is what Chuck Todd did in the midst of that discussion. He pulled out a letter that had been written to an editor to a newspaper somewhere, and he read this letter as he thought a good explanation for why people who proclaim to be Christians also so strongly support our president. This is, this is what the letter said. People have been trained from childhood to believe in fairy tales. Show me a person who believes in Noah's Ark, and I will show you a Trump voter. Can the world survive with fairy tales? The only answer I have to that is based on what Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 26 and 27. Listen to what he said. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, believed in Noah's ark. Noah's ark happened. It is history. It is true. There's lots of scientific, historical, logical reasons for believing that Noah's ark really happened. But that's not why I believe it. I believe it because Jesus Christ said it was true. He is the wisdom of God. He is the source of all truth. All truth claims must be measured by what he has said is true. Jesus treated the Old Testament as the very word of God. He treated it as though it was spoken by God himself. And then he gave his Holy Spirit to his apostles so that they could serve as the role as New Testament prophets and give to us the rest of God's revelation so that in the Old Testament, uh, the writings of the prophets and in the New Testament, the writing of the apostles, we have the complete truth of God, which is all about Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. And that is our authority. That is how we know what is true. That is how we know what is right. As Peter, one of those apostles, said, listen carefully to his own claim in First Peter, or Second Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse 16. He said, "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths." when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then skipping down to verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the wisdom of God. How do we know what Jesus' wisdom is? It's because it's revealed to us through the writings of the prophets and the apostles. It's in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. That is our truth, and that is what we build our life on. And that brings us to the last observation of this text, which is the unique wisdom of Jesus. As we get to the end of the story, down in verse 39, 48, 30, verse 48, verse 49, you know, it's easy for us who have been parents to imagine the panic, the anxiety, the frustration of looking for your child for three days 
and wondering what is happening to him. And so you can identify with Mary when, she, when they find him in the temple. She's so relieved, but she's also so angry. <laughs> like, why did you do this to us, Jesus? Like he had done something wrong, and, but yet she's the one who's rebuked. And he says to her simply, you know, when you got to Jerusalem, why did you look anywhere else but in the temple? Why didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And to understand the depth and the importance of what he's saying, you have to understand that no Jew in that day would have ever called Yahweh, the one true God, would have called, no, no Jew would address him or speak of him as my God. You would search in vain every page of the Old Testament looking for a person of Israel, a person of the Old Testament church, a Jew calling God my father. They didn't do it. Jesus is claiming to have a unique relationship to God the Father because he is, in his divine nature, the eternal Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. Jesus is stating this unique relationship which gives him this unique wisdom. He would later say in Luke chapter 10, verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is a powerful statement of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only wisdom of God. If you want to know the Father, then you need to go through Jesus Christ. As he would later say, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. In verse 50, it says, his parents did not understand the saying that he spoke to him. And there you have the definitive answer to the eternal question, Mary, did you know? <laughs> no, she didn't. She didn't fully understand. In spite of what? The angel had told her, in spite of her experience of the virgin birth, in spite of the testimonies of Elizabeth and Zechariah and the shepherds, she didn't fully understand who Jesus was at that point. But still, it says in verse 51, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Again, it says she treasured these things in her heart. And I just ask you to look to her as your example, because there's so many things about Jesus Christ that you cannot understand. So many truths. I mean, do you understand the Trinity? I don't understand the Trinity. Do you understand how Jesus could be one person with two complete natures, divine and human? I don't understand that. I don't understand how they interacted. I don't understand why he knew some things in his divine nature, by his divine nature, and other things he did not know in his human nature, and how those limitations worked and interactions worked. I don't know. I don't understand. But that doesn't mean I can't treasure them up in my heart. I must treasure them in my heart because they're true. And woe is me if I think I can figure out the nature of God the Father or the nature of God the Son in my puny little tiny human brain. But I believe what he's revealed about himself because he is the wisdom of God. Let me close by reading for you from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7. These are familiar words, but I want you to listen carefully in light of what we've been talking about this morning, what he says. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The United Methodist Church is falling because it's been built on the sand of man-made ideas and man-made values. And I pray that this Bible Bible-believing portion of the Methodist church that's going to pull out and go on, that they would build their teachings and their lives upon the rock who is Jesus Christ, the very wisdom of God. I pray that this church will always be built upon and founded upon the rock who is Jesus Christ, who is the very wisdom of God. I pray that our denomination will always stay true to the rock and be built upon that foundation. I pray that each one of you will always build your lives upon the rock who is Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God, and not on the sands of human foolishness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, to change our hearts, to take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh that not only can hear, that can understand, and not only understand, but submit and, and believe and trust in this crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you for sustaining our faith that we might not only believe in him and trust in him, but that we might proclaim him to a world that needs to know him, not the Jesus of the culture, but the Jesus of the scriptures, the only Jesus who can save. Father, make us and keep us faithful to that calling. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.